Who's in control? Does God care? And where can we find comfort? Those are the questions that are answered in this book called Nahum. So really, this is a little book with a big message. Many of us have wondered about these questions. We've wondered who's in control. Who's in control when unforeseen circumstances enter our lives? When disaster comes over us, when the weak are taken advantage of, when the church is persecuted and ridiculed, when Satan and his lies seem daunting, when sin seems so attractive. Is the government in control? Is Satan in control? Are the enemies of God in control? Or perhaps we should take things into our own hands because ultimately we're in control. Who's in control? We've also wondered who cares. Who cares when our systems of justice are unjust? Who cares when the poor are exploited? Who cares when the powerful are cruel? And who cares when the people of God are trampled on by the world? Does God care? And in all of this, where can we find comfort? Where do we run when we're surrounded by evil? Where can we go when wickedness is all around us in every direction we look? How can we hold on when everything seems absolutely unbearable? How can we press forward when the temptation to sin is so intense? Where can we find comfort? To find the answers to those questions, let's turn our attention to the book of Nahum. This is a prophetic book written against the city of Nineveh, which was the magnificent, uh, marvelous capital of the Assyrian Empire. You might even think of Nahum as the sequel to Jonah, because in Jonah, which was written about 100 years, it takes place at least about 100 years before Nahum, Nineveh repents and God relents. But in Nahum, Nineveh does not repent and God destroys it is full of really graphic language that will certainly uh, keep you awake as we read it. And so let's read it together now. I will be reading out of the ESV translation this morning. Um, so if you have a copy of the ESV translation, or if you can find it on the Bible app or online, I would encourage you um, to do so. An oracle concerning Nineveh the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. 
What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will, trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness went where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. 
Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts. Settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Israel, of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? I want to make three observations with you this morning about this book. The first is that God is in control. The second is that God cares about what is right. And the last one is that God is our comfort. He's in control. He cares and he comforts. The first question we asked at the very beginning was, who's in control? Well, as I read this book over and over and over again this week, one theme began to jump right off the page. That God is in control. And that theme became so clear because I saw a constant contrast between the big and powerful Nineveh and our big and powerful God. Perhaps Nineveh felt confident in their ability to be able to control things. But they were about to meet the one who's truly in control. In fact, it was chapter 1. Verse 12, that first began to stick out. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. So God is giving a threat of destruction at a time when Nineveh was most powerful. It says they were at full strength. It says they were many. So our God is in control. Because he intervenes and he disrupts the plans of people and nations when they're at their peak. When they're in their prime. And then I begin to notice all the little taunts that are sprinkled throughout this little book. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it probably stood out to you as we read it. There's this mention of Nineveh being like lions. 
Now, the lion was often a symbol of the kings and the princes in the ancient world. They considered themselves lions because they would prowl around like a lion and devour other nations, destroy other nations. In fact, Nahum said the lions of Nineveh were so violent that they were so powerful, it says they had caves filled with prey. But in chapter 2, verse 13, God says the sword will devour their young lions. So the predators of many prey would become prey themselves. And then I saw the taunt in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. In recent memory, Assyria had destroyed the city of Thebes, which was a major city in Egypt at certain points in Egypt's um, life and long history. It was the capital. And the Nile was a natural barrier for Thebes. There was water surrounding it on both sides. It was able to keep away enemies because of these natural barriers. It had the military might and prowess of Egypt. It had the assistance of all these strong allies. But Assyria destroyed them. So this was the climax of Nineveh's power, that they could ransack Thebes itself. This is what the Assyrian Empire was doing. But then God says in verse 11 of chapter 3, you also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. He's saying, you're no better than Thebes. You'll be just like them. What you did to them will be done to you. So even when everything seemed under control for Nineveh, God was in ultimate control. Their military might, their national power gave them the sense of being sovereign over everything. But there's only one who is sovereign over everything, and that's God. God is in control, and that should give us at least two things. It should give us humility. It should give us hope. It's possible that some of you are living like you're the one who's ultimately in control. And you need this message to humble you. Because our tendency is to trust in ourselves. You could be in some position of power. You could be in some position of authority. You could have it made. Things could be going really well for you. Things in your family could feel secure. Things in your life could feel all under control. I mean, you could be at the top of your game. You could be, as we saw Assyria was, in your prime. There's so many areas of our lives where the tendency is going to be to trust in ourselves when things are really good. We tend to think that things are secure, that things are taken care of because of me, because of my decisions, because of my plans, because of my wisdom. And I'm not saying that your actions don't impact your circumstances. They certainly do. But your pride also impacts your circumstances. And we need to remember that at any moment, as we begin to pridefully trust in ourselves as having it all together, God could tear it all apart. So turn your prosperity away from pride and turn it into praise. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, one of the most prideful things that you can do is to think you have everything under control apart from a relationship with God. Nineveh, keep this in mind, Nineveh wasn't judged for being powerful. They were, being, they were judged for being godless. And because of sin, we're godless. We're separated from a relationship with God unless God does something about it. 
And it is the epitome of pride to think that we have it all together when we're at odds with the one who holds all things together. So the Bible promises that one day every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And the difference between doing so now and doing so then is the difference between life and death. So God is in control and that should give us humility. And it should also give us hope. Because maybe your temptation isn't that you feel high and mighty and in control of everything. Instead, you're not in control and you're perfectly aware of it. For you, things seem chaotic. Something always seems out of place. Something is always going wrong. Things are always out of control. Well, then if that's where you stand, then you can find comfort like Judah did. Find hope in the fact that neither nations, nor enemies of the church, nor natural disasters, nor inflation, nor the elites, nor anything is in ultimate control. God is. And as God's children, through faith in Jesus Christ, God controls all things and works all things for our good. We can't forget that one of the strange aspects of this book is that the destruction of Nineveh was the deliverance of Judah. God can and will control all things for the good of the church, even when the obstacles are the strongest nations in the world. God is in control. So that's the first observation for us to see. And there's another observation about Nahum that jumps right off the page. It's that God cares about what's right. He cares about justice. He cares about fairness. He cares when the poor are oppressed and when women are abused and when populations are targeted. He cares when justice systems fail and when judges are corrupt and when leaders are cruel and on and on. God cares about what is right. He is righteous and he is just. And in this book, we see that Nineveh was unrighteous and unjust. In fact, the Assyrians were known for their cruelty. As archaeologists have begun to uncover more and more about this ancient empire, we've discovered that they truly were the lords of torture. They would impale their victims. They would impale their victims under the ribs with these large, sharp stakes. And they would allow the person's body weight to just slowly move them down so it impales them more and more and more and they die a slow, torturous death. Some kings would brag about how the fact they would have the people they've captured and other kings, um, how they would commit themselves to flaying And flaying is when they would rip off the victim's skin while the victim is still alive. And they would display it for people to see. This was their billboards in Assyria. This was their announcement to the nations. Don't mess with us. We're in control. We're powerful. Beheadings and amputations were common. So it's no wonder that in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Woe to the bloody city all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Verse 10 of chapter 3 shows us how they would capture other enemies and what they would do to the children and what they would do to the powerful men in that society. So it says this, chapter 3, verse 10, yet she, talking about Thebes, when they captured Thebes, yet Thebes became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces. 
at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. So they would kill the children and use the powerful men as slaves. So what does God say in response to the cruelty of Nineveh? The question is, does he care? What is his position towards injustice? Well, twice throughout this book, he says this terrifying phrase. The first time it shows up in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. God cares about what is right. And he is personally against those who do wrong. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Wherever there is wrongdoing, he punishes it. Where there's evil and wickedness, there's judgment. If someone is guilty, he doesn't clear them because he's just. He cares about what is right. Which means every act of injustice done to you, God cares about it. And he will handle it one way or another. I began to think about chapter 1 verse 2. It says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. And I began to wonder, what what does his jealousy have to do with his wrath on Nineveh? And then I realized that Nineveh was an enemy of his people. And they were cruel to his people. And God is a jealous God. He's not going to have his name thwarted by some prideful prince with their wagons and their spears and sharp sticks. He is going to have his name glorified. And so he identified with his people and their suffering. He hates the injustice done to his church. In fact, God so identifies with this injustice to his people. So much so that when he looks at Paul on the Damascus road, who was persecuting Christians, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting them? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So Peter can tell us then to rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. Because Christ shares in those sufferings with us. Because he cares and he identifies with us in them. So we can rejoice knowing that ultimate justice will be done. God cares about what is right. That's why he says he will by no means clear the guilty. The guilty get punished. That's what a good judge does and if God cares about what's right he'll make sure the guilty get what they deserve but here's the kicker I sat down with a friend of mine a couple of months ago and he was able to easily point to the evils of the world out there I mean it's easy right to point at the Assyrians and the Nazis and the terrorist groups and the mass shooters It's easy to point at at those people as doing evil and being evil and wicked. Of course, they're guilty. But then my friend asked me, well, why doesn't God just go ahead and just get rid of all the evil? And so I asked him, I said, have you ever said something really mean to your wife and made her cry? Simple question. 
He said, yeah. I said, well, you've contributed to the evil, haven't you? Do, do you want God to get rid of you too? You see, the shattering reality of Nahum is that we all deserve the punishment of Nineveh. We're all guilty before a holy God. But God is patient. He is slow to anger. He doesn't just wipe out evil immediately so that we have time to repent and to believe. God cares about what is right. Because He's righteous. He's just. So then the question is, what is our hope? If God will by no means clear the guilty, how can we be forgiven? And this is a very similar verse to what has often been called the great riddle of the Bible. So keep in mind that phrase in Nahum about by no means clearing the guilty. And then also think about this verse, Exodus 34, verse 7. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. It's been called the great riddle of the Bible. And it talks about God doing this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You might think, well, how can God forgive the guilty and still punish the guilty? That's, that's the great riddle of the Bible. And the answer to that question, the answer to that riddle is at the heart of Christianity. How can God forgive the guilty but still punish the guilty? And the answer is that someone must become the guilty in our place. Someone must become the guilty in our place. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus went to the cross to become the guilty in our place so that we would not be treated as the guilty ones in God's eyes. Not because we're innocent, but because Jesus is. And we get credit for His perfection by trusting that only He is our hope in life and death before God. I mean, Nahum has that frightening phrase, I am against you. Well, the father was against the son on the cross so that he would no longer be against those who believe in him. That's why Romans says Jesus died so that God would be the just and the justifier of those who believe. He would justify us by forgiving us but still he would be just because Jesus paid the penalty. That's how God forgives the guilty, but by no means clears the guilty. He doesn't just forgive us willy-nilly, out of nowhere. He forgives us by pouring his wrath out on Jesus instead. Because he cares about what's right, even in salvation. So Nahum should remind you, I think, as I ponder this and meditate on this point that God cares about what's right, Nahum should remind you of the just wrath of God that we all deserve. It should remind you that the guilty don't get off scotch-free. It should remind you that God cares about what is right. And it should then make you fall down in thankful worship of Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. God is in control. God cares about what is right. And the last observation I want to make in this book is that God is our comfort. I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. God's destruction of Nineveh was his deliverance for Judah. That's why we get chapter 1, verse 15, where God actually encourages Judah to celebrate the judgment of Nineveh. Imagine that. 
Here's chapter 1, verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, this might make you feel uncomfortable. That it's good news that Nahum brings of the destruction of this entire empire. I might make you feel uncomfortable, and I understand why. But I was reading something that Mark O'Donohue wrote in an article for Nine Marks Journal, I believe, at least on the website. He said this, Preach Nahum because it offers solid comfort from an uncomfortable God. And isn't it true? Because a God who didn't care, and a God who didn't judge, and a God who didn't punish, and a God who didn't enact vengeance against his enemies would be a God we could find no comfort in. There's something about the uncomfortable reality of Nahum that gives us a God who can actually be our refuge, that can actually be our stronghold because he's on our side, because he cares about what's right, because he will do the right thing in the end. In fact, the name Nahum means comfort. That's the point of the book. And the key to understanding this point in this entire book is in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. This is the key for the whole book of Nahum. Chapter 1, 7 through 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The warriors of Nineveh come face to face with the divine warrior. And this theme of the divine warrior is carried out throughout the New Testament. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus defeating sin. Jesus defeating death. Jesus defeating Satan, our greatest enemies. Now, Nineveh was later destroyed in 612 B.C. by the Babylonians. In fact, archaeologists have found massive evidence of extreme fire damage at the old site of Nineveh. So this prophecy came true in 612 B.C. But death was destroyed when Jesus rose from the grave. And Jesus will return again to destroy all his enemies. This idea of God acting as the divine warrior is not limited to the book of Nahum. In fact, Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So now Christians can truly sing with Paul in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And we know from Revelation 19 that Jesus will come as a rider on a white horse, this divine warrior. He will destroy his enemies. And as the judge, he will throw death and Hades into the lake of fire. But for those who are his children, he's their refuge. He's their comfort. As O'Donohue says, only this God can be a refuge in the face of an overflowing flood like Assyria. 
So my encouragement to you would just be to take comfort in an uncomfortable God because that's the only kind of God that could truly comfort you. This is the God you need when the world hates you. This is the God you need when you're mocked and ridiculed. He's the God you need when someone you love treats you poorly. He's the God you need when depression surrounds you like Assyria with all her armies. He's the God you need when Satan and his lies and your flesh are flaring with temptation to sin. You need a God that can destroy all of these things that try to take precedence over our lives. As the text says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Friends, God is in control. God cares about what is right. And God is our comfort. I don't know which one of those realities out of this book hit you the hardest. Perhaps you were humbled to know that God is in control and that you're not. Or maybe you found hope in that fact because things seem so out of control and now you know that ultimately they're not. Or maybe you were encouraged that God cares about what's right so he identifies with your suffering. Or maybe you just found out that God cares about what's right so he won't let the guilty go. And perhaps you need to trust today for the first time in your life to place all your hope in Jesus who became guilty for you on the cross in your spot so that you can be forgiven. If so, maybe you need to let someone know before you leave, one of the pastors, someone you came with. Or maybe you were encouraged to take comfort in an uncomfortable God because the divine warrior is fighting for you in your day of trouble. So you need to take refuge under his wings no matter what the trouble is. God is in control. God cares about what is right. God is our comfort. No matter what it was that gripped your heart this morning, here's what you can't do. You can't just let it go in one ear and out the other. You should ponder it. You should treasure it. You should meditate on it until it overflows in praise and in proclamation. And so now that's what we'll pray for God to help us do.